What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 5 of the Education Research Reading Room. The podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This week we're talking to Pamela Snow about two key issues. The first is about how to conduct interviews with students when you're trying to get to the bottom of an issue or challenging situation. And the second is phonics-based literacy instruction and the proposed national phonics check. Pamela Snow is a registered psychologist having qualified originally in speech pathology. Her research has been funded by nationally competitive schemes such as the ARC Discovery Program, ARC Linkage Program and the Criminology Research Council and spans various aspects of risk in childhood and adolescence, in particular, the oral language skills of high-risk young people, for example youth offenders and those in the state care system, and the role of oral language competence as an academic and mental health protective factor in childhood and adolescence applying evidence in the language to literacy transition in the early years of school, linguistic aspects of investigative interviews with children and adolescents as witnesses, suspects and victims in criminal investigations. Pamela has taught a wide range of undergraduate health professionals and also has experience in postgraduate teacher education. She has research links with the education, welfare and justice sectors and her research has been published in a wide range of international journals. She is frequently called upon to address education, health, welfare, and forensic audiences. Pamela's Twitter handle is at Pamela Snow 2 and her the numeral 2, and her blog, The Snow Report, can be found at www.pamelasnow.blogspot.com.au. This is one of the most stimulating ERRR conversations to date. We had the greatest attendance so far to the ERRR and the diversity of the attendees really added to the richness of the conversation. In this episode of the ERRR, I was particularly interested in the portion of our discussion pertaining to the Year 1 phonics check that's been proposed in Australia. We delved deep into some of the arguments for and against the phonics check, and I left with a much more nuanced understanding of the proposal. For those who recently listened to the Teacher's Education Review episode with Misty Adenew on the same topic, this ERRR episode offers a discussion of this proposed phonics check from another perspective. I'll link to that TR episode in the show notes, which can be found at ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. That's O-L-L-I-E-L-O-V-E-L-L.com forward slash podcast. As we step into the ERRR, I'd really like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respect to Elders past and present, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the podcast. I also wanted to mention a recent report on Indigenous disadvantage, and I thought listeners might like to check it out. The Overcoming Indigenous Disadvantage Report by the Productivity Commission. The report measures the well-being of Australia's Indigenous people and provides information about outcomes across a range of areas from early childhood development to education and training, healthy lives, economic participation, home environment, and safe and supportive communities. The report examines whether policies and programs are indeed or are not achieving positive outcomes for Indigenous Australians. A big thanks to Max Lenoy for sharing information about this important report with us for this episode. Max himself is an Indigenous Australian academic, currently lecturing and teaching in the areas of educational technologies and Indigenous education at James Cook University. Max can be found on Twitter with the handle 
at Black Academic. That's B-L-A-K Academic. So without further ado, let's jump straight into episode five of the ERRR with Pamela Snow. Pamela Snow, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you, Ollie. It's lovely to be here. Fantastic. The The question we usually start off with is, if you meet someone at a party and they say, hi, hi Pamela, what is it that you do? What is your answer? <laughs> um, it, it depends a little bit on um, who, who the person is and what I know about their background and, and so forth. But I, I usually start by explaining that I'm an academic at La Trobe University. Um, and if they still look interested, um, I, I tell them that I'm the head of the La Trobe Rural Health School and I'm, I live and work in Bendigo where the Rural Health School is based. And then uh, depending on whether they're still interested, I explain that my original background was in speech pathology, but I'm also a registered psychologist. And my research interest really sits at the interface of speech pathology and psychology, particularly in relation to vulnerable or high-risk young people. Um, So I've done a lot of research on young people in the youth justice system, young people in out-of-home care, working currently with uh, on a study on young people in flexible alternative education settings. And all of that has led me to a strong interest in early literacy education. Um, you're regarded by many as a bit of a phonics expert, and it's obviously a key kind of area of focus for you. I'm wondering how you came to choose to focus on phonics. What is it about mm-hmm. phonics and early kind of literacy instruction mm. that's particularly interesting for you? Sure. I mean, I just really got more and more interested, as I was saying earlier, my work on young people in the youth justice system brought me into the literature on the so-called school-to-prison pipeline, on early academic failure, on high rates of suspensions and exclusions for young people who have behaviour difficulties, who often also have very serious learning difficulties, but it's the behaviour difficulties that bring them in contact with the service delivery system. And so that got me just going further and further back upstream and inevitably I I landed um, on reading instruction and I guess the so-called reading wars, which got me reading the literature about reading instruction and you know, led me to the uh, the disappointing conclusion that we're, we're far from resolved, that one, and there still is unfortunately um, a significant ideological divide around how best to get all children um, across the bridge in the first three years of school. And I do think of it as crossing a bridge and it's a precarious bridge for many young children, many children from particularly disadvantaged backgrounds. And in reading the reading literature, of course, you know, you you look at the elements of um, early reading instruction and you know, many people here would be familiar with the so-called five big ideas. Sometimes it's referred to as six of phonemic awareness or phonological awareness of which phonemic awareness is a component, phonics, vocabulary, comprehension and fluency. Now, none of those are controversial except for phonics. <laughs> you know, we, we don't have um, stouches about the importance of comprehension or fluency or phonological awareness, but we're, we are quite unresolved um, about phonics. and. The the bottom line, I guess, is that all children need to learn to decode. Some need much more specific instruction in order to learn to decode than others. So some, by virtue of their um, home environment, their level of language and text exposure in the preschool years, of some lovely biological endowment that they have, 
get there irrespective of the instructional environment that they're in and that's great. But teachers need to be able to get all of the children in their class across that bridge to literacy and the children in the the so-called long tail of underachievement are the ones who need the specific instruction and quite systematic early instruction on decoding. So I'm at pains to say phonics is not everything. Um, you know, people say in response to my stance, there's more to, to reading than phonics. Well, of course there's more to reading than phonics. That's like saying there's more to making a cup of tea than putting the kettle on. But you, you need to get some hot water if you're going to make a cup of tea and you need to be able to decode if you're going to become a proficient reader. Uh, so whole word, approaches will get you so far but there's going to come a point when you need to learn to decode so I'm still fascinated as to why that's the you know what I've referred to as the ugly duckling um, of the big five. I look forward to us getting more into that ugly duckling analogy a bit (laughs) later as well. For now we might just jump back to the first article that was on the agenda for Mm -hmm. this evening's ERRR. And that article was entitled Guidelines for Teachers to Elicit Detailed and Accurate Narrative Accounts from Children. It was essentially about applying a forensic interview kind of technique or approach in the school environment. It's quite an interesting kind of concept and approach to an article. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the genesis of that Mm. article, how it came into being. Mm, Sure. The background to that article is really um, the work that I've been doing. Uh, it's, it's probably been a less central part of my research portfolio, but uh, one that is very important to me and that I value very much. And that's the work with Professor Martine Powell at Deakin University on investigative interviewing. So Martine is an expert on children's eyewitness memory. And she's translated that work over the years into best practice guidelines for police and human services personnel in how to conduct interviews with children in cases of, um, particularly in cases of serious allegations such as sexual abuse and other forms of assault. I guess if we if we leave adult investigators to their own devices, there is a bit of a tendency to treat children as miniature adults and to assume that children understand the purpose of that kind of interview, that they understand listener prior knowledge, um, that they uh, can correct um, incorrect um, assumptions that the interviewer makes when they detect those. But of course, children don't do all of those things. So um, I've been working on and off with Martine over a number of years on ways of um, enhancing interviewer training and and martine martine's original background i might add was in as a primary school teacher and she was working at the gatehouse center at the royal children's hospital and got interested in the whole area of notifications and child abuse and that led her to go back and study psychology and become a forensic psychologist and then when she and i met up of course i brought a, a different angle a sort of disruptive angle to that work um coming from a speech pathology background um and we were able to mesh our our thinking because i introduced her to the idea of narrative discourse um and and different theoretical frameworks around narrative discourse what's narrative discourse uh, narrative discourse is the ability to share your experiences to tell a story so, you know, uh, to, to go home and say, oh, gosh, you won't believe what happened when I was at work today. 
um, everything was going really well until we heard loud sirens and, you know, suddenly there were fire engines outside. So I'm telling a narrative. I'm, I'm, ex- I'm sharing my experience with you via a, um, a, a sort of a template, I suppose, of putting things in the right order, the right sequence, linking events together logically. And narrative discourse is a language skill that all children need to acquire. It's, it's one of the earlier forms of discourse, of you know, connected language use that children do acquire. And of course, it's what they need to use in a forensic context. We have very low um, prosecution rates in Australia and in most Western countries for child um, sexual assault. Um, and it gets lower the younger the child. But I, th- I think the successful prosecution rate is less than 2% uh, where there are allegations of um, child sexual assault. And in an evidentiary sense, the child's narrative account matters hugely. Um, so that's, that's the most powerful thing that we have. Right. But um, historically, many cases have been thrown out of court because the judge determines that the narrative was elicited in a leading way and, uh, and, and so that gets the alleged perpetrator off the hook. So the idea behind Martin's um, body of research is to train interviewers to elicit the most well-developed free narrative account from a child that we can. And the way to do that is by using as many broad, open-ended questions as we can and avoiding specific questions, the who, what, why kind of question. It was a fascinating paper and it took a really interesting approach in that it had little excerpts of dialogue yep. between Braden and I think it was M- Mrs. Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually really engaging to read. One of the interesting kind of narrative eliciting techniques that was used by Mrs. Smith was at the start, she actually got Braden to talk or to tell her a narrative that was completely unrelated to the scenario that she wanted to eventually get to. I was wondering if you could talk to that a little bit. The, the idea there is to... I guess to prime the child a little bit um, about the what's expected of them, because in in everyday life, narratives, particularly narratives between children and adults, are heavily scaffolded, and narratives tend to be um, embedded within conversations. So that's giving the the child some practice at being asked to keep talking and creating an expectation that this is more of a monologue as much as possible rather than a dialogue and that the interviewer is going to keep expecting the child to say more. And that's not a a typical experience for a child where they're used to adults stepping in, taking over, scaffolding, making it easy for them and they're all the things that we don't want interviewers to do um, because that that then distorts the child's testimony. Especially given the likely interviewer and the school setting. Exactly, yep. Cool. So there were a few steps uh, that the paper went through. There was, or it talked about who's kind of uh, running the interview and the considerations Mm -hmm. about that, commencing and building rapport, uh, interview ground rules. There was eliciting the narrative account and then there was some supplementary and kind of more direct questioning. Uh, sections. For you, what was most new or surprising to you that you learned and took away from from this article in the process of writing it with uh, the co-authors? Look, that's a, a, that's a, a 
difficult question for me to answer just off the cuff. I think what I've found in discussions with teachers is that the the guidelines in the paper are somewhat counterintuitive. Um, so that that's perhaps been a learning for me, where teachers have said to me before they read that paper, their approach would have been to go in and kind of drill down um, with who, what, where, why, when kind of questions. And remembering too, as everyone knows, young children don't have good concepts of time and distance and duration anyway. But a lot of teachers have said to me, now that I've read the paper, it makes good sense, but it's not what I would intuitively do. So it's quite counterintuitive to try and elicit an extended narrative and to sit on my hands and just keep saying, aha, aha, and mm, and um, tell me more. Um, can you tell me more about the part where? Because that's constantly reinforcing with the child that you as the interviewer have confidence that they can keep telling you more and that, and that they've got more to tell. And very often children don't have a good filter for what's important and what's not important. Um, so we're an adolescent, as Beth was saying before, does have some awareness of what matters and what doesn't matter in that context. Young children won't attach significance um, to, um, you know, a piece of adult clothing being dishevelled. But it's more powerful in in a forensic sense if that gets mentioned in the context of a free narrative than if it comes up in response to a specific question. And when I say more powerful, I mean it carries more weight if we're actually looking at the legal system. I think this might be a good opportunity to throw to some questions uh, that were flagged just prior to the interview. Mm-hmm. So we've, in the room, we've got our primary principal, Lee. Over to you, Lee. Actually, one of the things that struck me from reading was uh, it's a great instructional practice to be using open-ended questions and you know, giving kids the take-up time to be able to tell their story or respond to what your intentions are for their learning anyway. So... As you've just said, very counterintuitive. And I'm wondering, uh, how have you gone about establishing cultures of practice where uh, teachers and interviewers can actually give kids the power mm. to be able to you know, share their narratives or construct their narratives in such a way where they have the position that they have the power to be able to tell their story? The short answer is I don't think we have. Um, and as you would know, um, the, the literature on classroom discourse tells us that there's a lot of teacher talk in in classrooms and that's not necessarily all a bad thing but children probably don't get the opportunities that many of them need to develop those um, more elaborate narrative skills that particularly when they may not be getting those opportunities at home and I think um, and there's teachers in the room, they can um, say this with more authority than I can. There's probably a a sense of um, kind of urgency around getting through the curriculum. Can't give every child, you know, the floor for 10 minutes in every hour-long lesson. Um, But I I think uh, that that's a conversation that we all need to be having about how to create more opportunities for children to be using more elaborate language um, syntactically and in terms of different discourse genres um, in the classroom. These are probably some skills that perhaps older children more naturally have uh, more easily. So it might be a good time to pass to Beth, who had a question about just that. Mm. 
Thank you. I was just wondering um, whether you had any advice for teachers working with students a little bit older, maybe around 12, 13, 14, who have more awareness um, of the implications of what they're disclosing. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been in situations where students have said um, or implied that something might be happening to them and are very reluctant to say what it is. And are there any kind of questioning techniques that you think would be appropriate mm -hmm. in that situation? I guess I, I should stress that this paper is very much written from a linguistic perspective. So we're trying to apply here um, what we've learnt from the forensic interviewing research to how that might translate into the classroom when a teacher has to investigate, you know, a known incident. So, you know, maybe there's been a fight in um, it was, uh, you know, a playground at recess and two kids have come in crying and, and so we we know that something has happened and some kind of you know school policies and due diligence dictate that there has to be some kind of investigation if you like by the teachers it, the the situation that you describe is quite a lot more tricky a because um there's not a sort of a known incident and you're dealing with an older child who has some understanding of the implications of possible disclosure. My advice there, and it probably is not really embedded in the paper, um, but would be more around the rapport and trust building side of the teacher-student relationship, I think, and letting the student know that you are someone in whom they can confide if they so wish or giving them um, phone numbers for, you know, kids' helpline, lifeline, letting them know that uh, you, you take their, their circumstances seriously and uh, that you, you are there and uh, keeping on checking in with them. You're unlikely to get very far, though, by trying to force disclosure, as I'm, uh, as I'm sure you know, and Sometimes uh, when uh, young people have had multiple experiences of um, told them that adults are untrustworthy, they may be testing you out and it may be quite some time before they decide that you are that person who's trustworthy enough to go and confide in. But then, of course, you need to explain the parameters that you're working under as a registered teacher as as someone who um, is subject to you know mandatory reporting, they, you know they they need to understand that. Yeah, I think that ties into a key point that really came out from the paper uh, to me. I just wanted to read an excerpt about that, and and potentially like you could yeah. talk to that. So, um, we were reminded to keep in mind the potential downfalls of multiple interviews for children, and specifically if a child makes a clear disclosure of abuse. Um, authorities should be contacted and interviews by school personnel should not be conducted. It is not the responsibility of school personnel to investigate the veracity of such allegations. Correct, correct. So you can be the person who they might use as a conduit to make a disclosure and or, or they may make a disclosure to you, but it's not your job then to investigate the allegation that they want to make. That's then clearly a police and human services matter. Were there any other questions in relation to the first article? Hi everyone, I'm Karen. I suppose my question was, what about students who have very low levels of mm -hmm. English literacy and have difficulty actually giving a narrative? Mm. How do you get the information and the detailed account from those students? It may be, I mean, if they don't have adequate English language skills, 
then it may be that it's necessary to use an interpreter. But I would imagine in a day-to-day sense, if you're dealing with an incident in the playground, um, that's not really going to be um, an option. I'm, I'm going to say a whole lot of things that are going to be kind of ideal world here for a moment, I suppose. But you know, if, if you if you want to take these processes seriously, they need a bit of time and they need um, a quiet place. Um, a, a child who doesn't have enough English language skills is not going to be able to provide a, a narrative about what happened. Some children might be able to use other forms of expression like drawing, you know, art, and some teachers will be more or less comfortable in exploring other media. But unfortunately, if you don't have English language skills, it's going to be very difficult for you to um, share your experiences. And that's, you know, one of the complexities of, um, for us of working in such a multicultural, multilingual society. Hi, I'm Andy. Uh, What would you say in regards to the students with a tendency to withhold information purposely? They're the aggressor in violence. Mm -hmm. They are very aware that they have that power. And just Mm -hmm. like in a forensic interview, no comment is something we typically Mm -hmm. hear. How would you handle that? Well... You can't force anyone who doesn't want to disclose something or to participate in a conversation to to do that. I guess I, ideally we would go upstream and look at things like school climate, whole school policies around bullying and behaviour and taking responsibility. Being in the kind of school environment where um, you can do the wrong thing and be held to account but not be crucified for doing the wrong thing. So, you know, kids who know that there's going to be a pretty dire consequence to um, acknowledging that they've done the wrong thing are going to be less likely to disclose. So having a school culture that makes it safe to take responsibility and you know many schools um, have adopted restorative practices that do make it safe to say yes I did the wrong thing um, and to take responsibility and to hopefully bring some authenticity to um, how they navigate that conversation. Some, some children um, you know for whatever reason lack of empathy, lack of compassion what they're experiencing at home um, and and the fact that they've never experienced compassion and empathy and remorse um, delivered to them maybe don't have that skill set. But I do think the whole school climate and policy and and having a, a restorative rather than a punitive school culture is important if we want children, <coughs> excuse me, particularly if they're the perpetrator, to be able to engage with that process and it, and often those perpetrators are children who don't have strong language skills themselves as you'd know. Great, thanks Pamela. It was a fascinating first article and I really encourage anyone who's frequently or infrequently in a position where they have to have conversations with young people to have a read because there's so much more in there than, than what we've had the time to, time to touch on today. Thanks Holly. Practice on your own kids if you have kids. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of applications outside of the school. Yeah. Sorry, can I just say that paper is now open access too, so it's not behind yeah, a paywall is. anymore. Um, 
So it was really important to us to try and make it so that teachers can get hold of it without having to pay for it. And there will be a link to that in the show notes, so listeners will easily be able to find it. So the second topic today uh, is phonics, uh, phonics literacy um, instruction more generally. Uh, the article we had to read was the way we teach most children to read mm. sets them up to fail, one of your articles on the conversation. But I'm, I'm hoping this conversation kind of gets goes beyond just that article today. You mentioned a term in your kind of introduction, which was reading wars. Mm-hmm. I was hoping you could expand a little bit on on where that term comes from and what exactly it means. I can't tell you exactly where it comes from. It's a, um, someone in this room may know. It's a it's a term that's been around probably for thirty or forty years, and it refers, in a nutshell, to the ideological divide between the um, proponents of um, so-called whole language-based approaches. And and I must say, as a speech pathologist, on the face of it, whole language is something that speech pathologists should love because, you know, it's all about language and immersion in language and rich language and immersion in text. And, um, you know, it it almost seems counterintuitive to me that as a speech pathologist I'm not excited about um, whole language. There are things about whole language that I completely Completely subscribe to, and and you know particularly um, ideas like high quality children's literature, and and the idea of trying to get all children excited about reading and um, opening up the world through reading. But really, the the principles that the ideas that underpinned whole language when it took hold in Western industrialized nations. Really in the 1970s um, and beyond, by the work of people like Kenneth Goodman and Frank Smith, Brian Camben, the, the idea was that um, children, and I, I don't subscribe to this idea, but I'll tell you what the underlying principle was, that children don't have specific instruction in how to learn to talk and understand So therefore, they shouldn't need specific instruction in reading and writing because reading and writing is just another medium of communication. Now, um, we can drive a bus through that argument, a couple of buses through that argument. Children don't go to school to learn how to talk and understand, but they do receive a huge amount of adult input in early language and acquiring early language. I spent last night with my daughter and son-in-law and their 19-month-old son, Freddie, And as I pulled the door behind me this morning, I could hear Ali, my my daughter, commenting um, on what Freddie was doing in his high chair. And, you know, of course, as a speech pathologist, you know, I'm just processing this all of the time. And we know that children who come from more advantaged backgrounds are hearing a lot more child-directed language. Um, They're getting a lot more modelling and responsiveness and expansions than the children who come from more um, disadvantaged backgrounds, however you want to embody that um, term. So no, children don't sit down in a class to learn how to talk and understand, but boy, they get a heck of a lot of adult input into talking and understanding. And the other flaw in the whole language argument, this idea that reading and writing are somehow natural, is that reading and writing are social contrivances that as humans we've only been doing for about 6,000 years. So it's actually a biologically unnatural act. It's it's a term that's been used in the literature. Goff used that term in the 1980s, that it's biologically unnatural for us to read and write. Humans developed reading and writing systems because we decided that it would be useful to share information with each other and to pass it on 
um, for future generations. But it's a very, very complex um, cognitive symbolic process that piggybacks on language pathways in the brain. So it's a linguistic process. Children need to be taught. Some need a lot more explicit instruction than others. And I guess that's where my interest in children from more disadvantaged backgrounds comes in because they're the ones who do need the more explicit systematic instruction. And, and whole language is not about, and, and it's more recent iteration or variant balanced literacy. Um, you know, I see balanced literacy as whole language repackaged. Now, a lot of people would disagree with me on that, but I, I see balanced literacy as everything that whole language was with, oh, okay, all right, we'll chuck a bit of phonics in as well. We've got to, we've got to shut those phonics people up somehow. So, all right, phonics is in the mix. That's what you'll hear. And that gets, that gets a lot of kids across the bridge, but it won't get all kids across the bridge and we won't solve our problems of low literacy achievement in this country until we acknowledge that the kids who are starting from behind need teachers with a different knowledge and skill set. Cool. Just briefly harking back to what you were talking about before about speech being biologically primary and um, writing being biologically... Reading and writing. Reading and writing being biologically secondary. Yep. For any listeners who want to check that out a little bit more, I'll link to it in the show notes, but the work of David Geary... He actually came up with those terms, uh, oh, okay. biologically br- primary and biologically oh, secondary okay. right. knowledge, right. and you know asserts that we essentially invented schools to teach biologically secondary, secondary. knowledge. Right. Right. Um, so that's that's the challenge. Okay. So, oh, so thank we'll, you. No worries. We'll look to that in the and in the and show also there's the work of um, Goff, um, who's who used that term biologically unnatural, and I can send you um, some links. Great. We'll link to that as well. So the other day I had a uh, I had a friend staying at my house and um, I mentioned this interview tonight and and I talked about you know Pamela Snow she's a real proponent of phonics based instruction of literacy and this person said yeah but but English isn't a phonic isn't a <laughs> phonetic language uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> um, yep. what we, what do you say to that yep. kind of a okay. question um, no it, it, true English is not like Italian or Spanish uh, we don't have a one hundred percent transparent orthography. Um, so if you've ever learnt Italian or Spanish, you will know that it's, um, it, you know, if you learn, you, you can learn sound letter correspondences and, and off you go. We're often told that, you know, in Finland they do it so much better in relation to reading instruction, but that's also a transparent orthography, so it makes it a lot easier. English, by virtue of um, invasions and trade, has stolen and appropriated words from a number of um, languages, European and non-European. However, in spite of that, the um, the research tells us that about 50% of words in English do have um, a transparent uh, sound letter basis. There's something like, I can't remember the exact breakdown, but I can find it for you, another 25% that only have one letter that uh, doesn't have um, a, a transparent sound letter correspondence and that's usually a vowel because of uh, what occurred in, uh, in Britain in, now I'm getting a bit rusty on my history here, we, we'll say it's the Middle Ages but someone can correct me, the great vowel shift between the north and the south of England so a word like was, W-A-S, would have been pronounced was, but the great vowel shift meant that the pronunciation changed. 
and you can Google Great Vow Shift. And um, so we end up with, and Louisa Motes, um, the, the US um, literacy expert, has talked quite a lot about this in her writings. We end up with only a small percentage, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's less than 10% of, of words, quite a bit less than 10%, that really um, have a dense orthography that uh, you, know, you really need to know um, by sight. And of course, the way that uh, many children in prep or foundation, as we call it, are introduced to reading is by being given a list of sight words to take home and learn um, by memory. And we all need to recognise words by sight. You know, we can't be decoding every word that we encounter. And as we become more competent readers, more words go into our sight word recognition. But if we're teaching those, uh, asking children to learn those words just by sight without any knowledge of sound letter links, and many of those sight words have transparent sound letter links, some of them don't, then what we're potentially doing is just overtaxing their visual memory system um, to the point where you know that gets full very quickly, and they're not learning how to um, to decode. I think I've gone off the track from your question. That's all right. No, no, you, you very much stayed on it. I've just pulled up some some of your writing right. about those actual yep. facts. Uh, you have written about 50% of English words do have transparent orthography, meaning they can be read by someone who understands letter sound correspondences. A further 36% have only one sound that deviates, typically a vowel, which you mentioned yep. then. Uh, 10% can be spelt correctly if morphology and etymology are understood and a mere 4% cannot be decoded yep. from knowledge of these principles. It's really very low, mm. yep. Um, but we don't necessarily teach children etymology and how to pull words apart into morphemes, into the small units of meaning. And I, I was sent an email the other day um, about a university email suggesting a change of terminology for some senior staff and to using the term dean for these people. And this document used the term, used the word, I'll spell it for you, D-E-C-A-N-A-L. And I, I was reading that as the, the, the D-E being a prefix and I'm thinking D. Canal, you know, what on earth does that mean? And I looked it up and it's called deaconal, which means referring to a dean. Um, so my knowledge of morphology threw me there because mm. I, was, I was thinking that that D was a, a prefix. But it does actually in general help children if they learn about morphemes because it helps them to pull words apart and find meaning. Definitely. Some on the other side of, of the uh, reading wars fence uh, would talk about prefacing the importance of meaning. And mm-hmm. they'd kind of be a bit worried about breaking reading down into little segments and sure. getting teaching students these uh, directly instructing students these yep. little elements. What would yep. you what, what would be your answer to that? Look, I completely agree that reading is about uh, deriving meaning from the text on the page, lifting the words off the page, lifting the meaning off the page. I guess the argument here is to whether we're going top down or bottom up. And I think to make sure that everybody has got that toolkit that they need in order to decode unfamiliar words, if we start with bottom up, while simultaneously doing lots of wonderful classroom activities to build up vocabulary and comprehension and narrative and so forth, we're not making assumptions that when each child reaches a word that they can't read, that they've all got an equal and equivalent toolkit. So some children are going to have more in their toolkit 
to deal with that word. Other children are going to have quite thin toolkits. Well, why wouldn't we want all kids to have a full toolkit at their disposal? We know that proficient early readers, when they reach a word they don't know, stay with the word. They don't, their eyes don't move off and look at pictures. They actually stay with the word to try to decode it. The less proficient ones will be looking for information elsewhere. Uh, then there's the debate as to um, if, the, if the text says, if, the, is a, if there's a picture of a man sick in bed and the text says the man has the flu, and the child reads, the man has a cold. Now, has, has the child read? I would say no, um, because I'm a purist and I want children to be able to read what's on the page. I think a lot of whole language advocates would say, turn the page, praise the child. They've um, lifted meaning out, out of that. They've, they've, uh, they've worked out what's going on there. Well, and that's okay, maybe, while there's pictures there, but the pictures ultimately disappear. I don't think you want to go to a pharmacist who <laughs> applies those kind of principles to reading your scripts. I think much of what you've said so far would not be super controversial to a lot of listeners. Um, but there is something proposed in Australia which is quite controversial at the moment, and that's the National Phonics Check mm-hmm. uh, nationwide for, for year one mm-hmm. students. This is, by my understanding, primarily coming out of uh, adv- the advising of government ministers by a panel of literacy experts. Uh, and we, had, we have someone here, Marcia, who wanted to ask a question about your involvement in that panel. Pamela, I just wondered what you thought the possibility of the phonics check, the implications for teachers, because I know there's been debate from teacher unions and because it's seen as a finding the, as a detriment to or as some criticism of teacher training and teacher, you know, what's happening in schools. But, and also obviously one of the concerns is that if we're not going to change instruction, then why are we going to, what's the point of of checking, you know, are we going to match a change in instruction to? All all good questions. Um, I think if we start from first principles, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if we were doing well as a country with respect to our literacy levels. So if we were right up there in, you know, as an OECD nation that had high levels of success with respect to children's literacy, then I think the whole community would say, well, it doesn't really matter what's inside the black box. Um, You know, it seems to be working, so we'll leave it alone. We're not where we should be for a wealthy first world OECD nation. We we do have, um, as all of you would know and listeners would know, we do have an unacceptably big divide between advantaged and disadvantaged schools and students in this nation. And like all complex problems, that's going to need complex um, approaches and solutions. The, the, the phonics check, I, I guess, um, comes out of the debate around the fact that in spite of the fact that we had the National Inquiry into the Teaching of Literacy in 2005, so that's 12 years ago. Um, we haven't seen one state or territory in this country formally adopt the recommendations of, um, of that inquiry. In the UK, they had the Rose Report. In the US, they had the National Panel all around the same time, sort of 2000 to 2006. And nothing's really changed. If, if anything, we're, we're probably losing ground. We don't have any 
mechanisms in place that are uniform nationally when it comes to checking children's progress. I think that transition from learning to read to reading to learn is such that we can't be leaving this till year three NAPLAN to find out that there are children who are diabolically behind. We need to give teachers um, a uniform tool. That, that This is my personal opinion, so I'm not speaking as a member of the panel now. I'm speaking from a personal perspective. I think we need to provide something that all teachers are doing so that we can compare apples with apples. Uh, I've got no doubt that teachers across the country do some kind of check on um, year one students, but they're not all doing the same thing and it's not necessarily giving them the high quality data that we want them to be getting and too many children are are not getting across the line. Now, of course, you know, it's inevitably that there are concerns about it being an interrogation of teacher practice. I guess my personal response to that is that teachers are incredibly important professionals and the community needs to be able to interrogate teacher practice in the same way that we interrogate doctor practice. And, you know, the example that I used on my blog recently was what happened at Backers Marsh Hospital um, with those uh, horrendous and tragic deaths of of babies because um, appropriate practices weren't used in the obstetric care of women in that hospital and we saw an unacceptable spike in the rates of stillbirth and birth of babies with severe disabilities. Well, the community has a stake in knowing that best practice is occurring um, across the board in healthcare, and I think we've got the same stake in education. So, I I mean, I I would encourage teachers to engage with this with curiosity and to um, think about what what might come out of this as, as beneficial tools for teachers. And I would hope that there would be, depending on the findings, I mean, there may be a pilot that shows that there's nothing wrong with kids decoding skills. Well, then we've got to go and look elsewhere for solutions. But if the pilot or if there is a pilot and if it indicates that there are concerns, then that's a, a conversation that we need to have about how to facilitate more even practice because clearly some schools are punching above their weight in this space. So what are they doing that's different. How can we make practice more even? How can we make children's experience of early years classrooms more equitable, particularly the children who are starting from behind? And I I would hope that all teachers would want to engage with that and and be curious uh, and open to potentially changing practice if that's what's indicated. Uh, I don't think any of us can keep doing what we were taught to do at university, you know, ad nauseum, the science changes and, and so we need to be open to changing practice. In relation to that point you made about, uh, you know, sl- slider, sliding literacy levels in Australia, I, I read a comment from someone this week who's kind of on the other side of the, the fence to you. Mm-hmm. I wanted to read it out and give you an mm-hmm. opportunity to respond. Yeah, uh, sure. So what they said was, the fact is that only 5% of students are under the literacy benchmark at year three, uh, as per NAPLAN. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't. I haven't fact checked that. But um, and that it doubles every year after. That tells us that we are sliding down the literacy test slide, not because our children can't read the basics, it's because they can't read the complex. Thus, 
we've already got phonics covered. Yeah, I think there's a lot of big leaps in there um, and I certainly would be fact-checking that initial statistic mm-hmm. um, because um, we we know that a lot of secondary students and I, I recently met with a local secondary school in Bendigo and the, the principal and the literacy coordinators or uh, yeah, literacy coordinators there were you know, despairing of the number of students who are making it through to um, secondary school, not just with comprehension and inferencing problems, but in many cases with very poor decoding skills. Um, We know that one in seven 15-year-olds is well below benchmarks with respect to literacy. That's from the work of Jeff Masters at ACER. So I I certainly would be fact-checking that statistic. But I guess it calls into question what, what is an acceptable percentage of children to be not making the transition to literacy. You know, we, we know that people with intellectual disabilities can be taught to read when appropriate instructional approaches are used. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's room for some fact-checking there. But what I'll do is I'll actually I'll contact the person who, who posted sure. that and in the show notes I'll, I'll link to yeah, a reference. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to, to see that, to see the source sure. too. And, and yeah. it, can be, it could be a discussion that continues after, after the podcast. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ollie. Now, in terms of the pilot, we're about to implement or the, the proposal is that we implement a pilot in Australia. But, you know, this isn't the first place that this, this phonics check has been run in fact, it was it's been run in the UK and it's been it was implemented to start off with in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, evidence from that has been drawn upon by Jennifer Buckingham in her paper that kind of um, has held a bit of sway here. But I wanted to go back to uh, an article that's been sent to me in the last week that kind of questions the efficacy of that that test in um, in the UK. So I'll just read an excerpt from mm-hmm. that and, and then we can have a chat about that. Okay, so this is from uh, a report commissioned by the UK government in 2015 and it was entitled Phonics Screening Check Evaluation Final Report. Um, So this is three years after the implementation and on page 10 uh, it says, the evidence suggests that Mm -hmm. the introduction of the check has had an impact on pupils' attainment in phonics but not, or not yet, on their attainment in literacy. So what would you say to that one? Um... Look, yeah, I think, you know, this is another example of complex inputs, complex outputs. We need to follow these children for a longer period of time. We need to look at how we're measuring literacy and we need to be open to all possibilities. Um, You know, that's what the scientific method demands of us. My hypothesis uh, would accord with the hypothesis that obviously the UK government started with that phonics skills of many children uh, or decoding skills were weak and that that was in part at least attributable to teaching methodologies and to the kind of eclectic um, approach to teaching children in the early years rather than a, a systematic um, approach to synthetic phonics. And, and the, I mean, that's what those three national inquiries endorses as well. Now, maybe, maybe we're getting improvements in phonics, but not enough improvements in phonics through the change in practice that's occurred for that to translate into improved literacy. It's possible that the way they're measuring literacy is 
you know, perhaps not sensitive enough, but it may be that we're still a bit sub-threshold and there's still too much of um, the um, eclectic, multi-queuing, what they call in the UK, searchlights approach. So children are maybe getting more systematic phonics instruction, but not enough for that to be bumping up literacy levels. So we'll have to wait and see and maintain an open scientific stance on that. Sure. I mean, none of these decisions are ever made um, with complete certainty that they're going to have success or otherwise. No. But I guess well, what I... And sorry, if I can just add, and of course in the UK, um, you know, they, they implemented it nationally. Um, so it's been like a big national experiment, natural experiment. So they didn't introduce it in one region and have business as usual in another region. No and control. so we, yeah, it, it's not been a controlled experiment. I guess... Well, the approach that I'm, I'm hoping a minister takes is to, to look at the evidence and, you know, on the balance of the evidence, make an assessment as to whether this is going to be likely to be a worthwhile investment because it's not a cheap thing to roll out a phonics check at a, at a national level. Um, but it's also what, not horrendously expensive. Yeah, it's, it's, what, what would the cost be? Um, it's in Jennifer's report. I think it's somewhere between $10, $15 per child. So, uh, you know... I'll be controversial here. When you look at what schools spend on completely non-evidence-based um, approaches, it's small bickies. And and we have the value of the data, of national uniform data, um, which we previously didn't have. Yeah, it is addressed in Jennifer's report. Um, I, I think it's going to cost about $1.4 as a startup cost and then about 600000 Ongoing, which actually, in the scheme of things, is not—it's not a lot of money. Big at all. Yep. Um, the school I work at is doing a rebuild at the moment, and that's going to cost over twenty-seven million. Yep. So, yeah, it's 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 not a significant cost. Hi, it's Karen again. Um, I'm just wondering if you've had any experience looking at the English online interview and the phonics element of that assessment. Yes, yes, I have um, looked at it. I haven't used it um, because I'm not a, a primary school teacher, but I have looked at it um, in relation to a research project that I'm part of, the classroom promotion of oral language. Uh, do you think that that gives adequate, I suppose, phonics data for teachers to work from? I know at our school it's mandated across Victoria for yep. all foundation students to do this test, but at our school yep. we do it from foundation year one and year two for all students to try right, and get that right. information and that yep. data to work yep. from. Um, I don't think it does give adequate phonics data and you're going to ask me now why and I don't have it in front of me but and I have looked at it. Compared to what the phonics check does, I, I guess it's more superficial and it also doesn't include what I know is a controversial element and that's the use of non-words, which the phonics check does. So a, a lot of people say, you know, why on earth would you get children to read non-words? I guess the answer to that is, you know, how can you read Harry Potter or um, how can you read J.R. Tolkien or Roald Dahl or how can you go to your local shopping centre and decode the names of half of the shops um, if you can't read non-words? Um, how did we work out what the word Google was? Um, uh, that was a non-word until it became a word. So, um, you know, words and non-words are a bit like friends and non-friends. You know, a friend is someone who you you know just haven't met yet and haven't got to know, and it's a, it's a bit the same with um, non-words. And the use of non-words also removes the element of children having been introduced to um, words as sight words, um, and so they're able to read them as a, that whole unit, but they're not actually decoding. So the phonics check is very much a, an assessment of decoding. 
It's Andy again. Uh, related to that, I'm sure you remember when Julie Gillard said hyperbole, and that's something that I thought as a good decoder um, up to my 20s, and I was reading high-level words but not always knowing how to say them. So given that, um, what's your take on audiobooks in the classroom, given that kids prefer to read books than on their screens? Sure, sure. You know, it's ironic, um, really, that the you, you may have heard of the the notion of the Matthew principle in relation to reading. The idea that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So the children who enter school with well developed oral language skills, narrative skills, syntactic knowledge, and so forth, are better positioned to make the transition to literacy and take off relative to their peers who don't have such well developed oral language skills. But there's another hidden benefit for those children because then they get exposed to words for the first time through reading. And they've only ever, they, they have words in their vocabulary, in their mental lexicon that they've only ever seen and never heard. And that's probably where hyperbole comes from. Someone was telling me recently, oh gosh, I wish I could, um, it'll come back to me. It was a, an education academic actually who was telling me about a, a word she um, mispronounced in, well into her teenage years because, uh, and it's frustrating me that I can't remember what it was, but she, and the fact that she had never been taught about morphology meant that she wasn't breaking that word down into its component. She was seeing it as one consolidated word. She didn't recognize the morphemes in it. And, you know, I often say in my presentations that, you know, that people, uh, you, you know that a child is dropping a word into the conversation that they've only read and never heard when they put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, when it, you know, it comes out sounding all weird and, and people say, well, you know, what did you just say? And my own adult children um, still do it. One of, one of my daughters um, still says, oh, you know, according to the old adage, and I say, no, it's adage. <laughs> but, you know, it's in her head, she read it and, and, and she made it adage and she still says adage. And, you know, I think that's a, a consequence of children being exposed to words through text. Audiobooks might be a way of dealing with that. Audio, I think teachers should be using a variety of instructional approaches. You can't do the same thing all day, every day. What's the term? Choral reading, you know, um, you know, or reading together. That's another way to address pronunciation issues. And talk, you know, you know, I think it'd be great if teachers have knowledge of etymology and can talk about where words come from and why we say the E on the end of that word and not on the ends of other words. I think that's all part of the wonderful discovery of, of language and I'd say use a variety of approaches, absolutely. I have one of these words. I've been reading it lots recently. I have no idea how to, how to say it. I'm hoping someone can help me out. It's C-O-N-T-I-G-U-I-T-Y. Is it contiguity? Is it contiguity? Is it... <laughs> um, tomato, tomato. Does anyone know Con contiguity? Con I would say contiguity. That's what I've been saying. Yeah, but someone else said contiguity the other day. So right. anyway, yeah. it remains a mystery. <laughs> uh, just Anthony, another little anecdote from a grade one classroom was I was teaching. Um, I was introducing tense and data the other week to my grade ones, and last year they had a teacher from Western Australia, and I, I said the word graph, and they all yelled at me and said it was graph. 
And um, it was kind of like, well, actually, it's not yeah. necessarily. And, and I was a bit stuck as to how to describe really? and explain that. And, and it just goes to show the complexity of what we're trying to teach. Absolutely. And, and if someone comes from South Australia, they will say graph and castle. Um, yes, I, I get taken to task sometimes as someone who lives in Bendigo by referring to Castle, Maine. And um, sometimes people pull me up and say, no, it's Castle, Maine. Um, well, not where I come from. It's Castle, Maine. And Australia probably has fewer of those regional differences than places like the UK and America, but we do still have regional differences um, that kind of mark out uh, who we are and, and where we're from. And, and some of them relate to vocabulary as well. Yeah. Just building on the English um, online interview, um, it's something we've tried to start using the data of this year ourselves, and we've done it. We've been collecting the data over a number of years, and now we're starting to to look at that data and and make some judgments from it. And then from that, we're trying to actually differentiate some of our groups based on common misconceptions of of what we're seeing in in trends. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, it's incredibly challenging. And then trying to deliver sort of I guess explicit phonics instruction to those needs. Um, mm-hmm. I guess my question is what what would you suggest or what have you seen out there in the primary school setting of, of which mm-hmm. is effective in teaching meaning and phonics? Um, and where, where does the balance fall? Sure, sure. Well, I, I see phonics as a, as a route to meaning. You know, all, all roads in reading have to lead to meaning and English is a morphophonemic language. So it's a language that consists of words that can be broken down into morphemes and also into phonemes. So I don't see using phonics-based instruction as something that's in any way divorced from meaning. You know, I see that as a language-based activity. And I see that really as just an essential part of a child's toolkit for approaching the, the written word. Now, it helps enormously if you're reading, if you've got a lot of background vocabulary, for example. Um, you're more likely to be able to understand what you're reading. If you're reading about animals, if you've had lots of conversations about animals, you know, animals from Africa or Australian um, animals or whatever, so that if you start to decode the word elephant, then you've got a mental image of the word elephant and you know what sound an elephant makes and and you know, that, that makes reading a lot more meaningful. Those of those of you who learnt a foreign language at school might still like me, I learnt French and, you know, I can I can lift words off the page in French, not with a very nice French accent these days. But because I've lost so much of my vocabulary, I'm not going to understand very much. So we have to be building up vocabulary alongside decoding skills. But in terms of um, you know how teachers do that, sometimes people say to me, "Well, what's a good program?" Uh, okay, you've convinced me that we need to be doing phonics. What's a good program? And my answer to that really is, um, I'd, I'd rather see knowledgeable teachers than X Y Z program being in use. I would recommend very much the writings of Louisa Motes and her excellent book, Speech to Print, um, which is uh, published here in Australia by ACER, and that's written for teachers, and it explains the kind of nuts and bolts of how the English language works, so it goes into linguistics with reference to teaching reading. So I, I think a knowledgeable teacher can, and there's lots of resources online, Alison Clark's Spellphabet website, I don't know whether any of you have come across that, is fantastic. So she's a Melbourne speech pathologist who does a lot of work in schools. 
She's created a lot of resources uh, that are free, downloadable from her website. She's also got a lot, uh, she writes a blog and she makes a lot of video clips of herself explaining things on her website. So I think building up knowledge, um, getting on Twitter, engaging with other people who are interested in the same things and learning that way, being knowledgeable rather than rolling out a program that you don't really understand the nuts and bolts of. Yeah, I find, I find that quite interesting because I do speak to a lot of teachers in a lot of different schools from um, who have been connected um, to form a study and that sort of thing. Yep. And a lot of them who have gone and done the trading and whatever program it is, they all love them right? Um, because it's giving them that information and that, that kind of pathway to follow, sure. uh, which makes the understanding and the, the ability to teach it a bit more and yes. accessible. Yep. Yep. Um, but having said that, like being a critical thinker myself and going, well, there isn't one size fits all approach. And, no. And so no. like you're saying, I think for, for pre-service education where there is obviously – there's a lot of time, um, or there's not enough time really to learn everything as you enter the, um, mm. into the profession. You really do mm. need to just invest in yourself, like you're mentioning, mm. and go and do mm. your own PD. That said, I think teacher pre-service education would do the next generation of teachers a big favour by explicitly teaching some of this stuff. That uh, A lot of teachers say to me, I've had to invest in myself and go back and learn new knowledge and new skills. Now, there's nothing wrong with people learning new knowledge and new skills. We should all do that in our professions, but we don't expect doctors to um, go and have to teach themselves how to give vaccinations or take blood pressure. We expect them to learn that as part of their undergraduate training. We've covered a lot today. Um, As we come to the end, there's four general questions that uh, we like to close with. If there aren't any other questions from the ERRR, if you take us back, you, you, you've done quite a bit of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, at university level. At, at, yep. at uni, sure. Yep. So, thinking back to your um, first year university teacher or lecturer self, mm-hmm. if you could go back, mm-hmm. uh, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, what advice would I give myself? Um, I, I think I would give myself the advice that um, one of my mentors gave me, which was to um, think about the difference between good teaching and good learning because they're not necessarily um, the same thing and what I as a, a you know, university teacher might think of as, as good teaching is not necessarily experienced as, as a good learning experience by students in my class. Um, I would also, um, I think, encourage myself to interrogate the balance between constructivism and explicit instruction and the the role of prior knowledge. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all for children, adolescents, young adults constructing their own understandings and some of my most wonderful aha moments as a learner have been when I have put something together myself and gone, oh my God, I just worked that out. Um, you know, I understood that because I've, I've, I've worked through that conceptually. However, I haven't been able to do that without a fair bit of prior knowledge. So um, I, I think I would encourage my, my younger self to really understand the, the balance between um, the need for explicit instruction and prior knowledge before we can encourage learners to be constructing their own understandings. Oh, and and s- someone's blog, who, someone who blogs about that a lot is Greg mm, Ashman. Um, correct. We'll, we'll, put a, we'll put a link to, to Greg's blog 
in the show notes. But yeah, he's yeah. written a lot about that Absolutely. and been very influential yes. in Australia and yes. around the world yeah. in terms of that, that debate. Um, next question. If you could fini- finish this sentence for me, that'd be great. Uh, imagine I was talking to one of your ex-students or current students mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and, and the, your ex-student says, oh, yeah, I remember Professor Snow. She's a lecturer who... Mm. <laughs> They'd probably like to say finished early. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I, I would hope that my students would feel encouraged to to think critically um, and to not get cosy with their assumptions. And and I guess that's something I've had to learn how to do. And I constantly try to remind myself to not be cosy with my my sort of schema, my way of viewing the world and. That's why, as I was saying earlier, you know, I follow people on Twitter with whom I don't necessarily agree, but I find their views incredibly valuable for nudging my own thinking, making me test my own assumptions. And, you know, we're all prone to biases, cognitive biases and making quick snap judgments. And and much of what we do every day requires us to make quick snap judgments. You know, when you think of driving, you you don't want to be thinking, well, should I stop at this red light? Shouldn't I? Let me weigh up the pros and cons here. Um, But I would hope that my students um, would say that they've they've come away feeling um, more conscious of the need to be critical thinkers. Cool. That's a great segue into the next question was, you know, ELLA is all about self-education and reading and, and exploring issues in depth. You're obviously someone who's very engaged in the Twitter community and, and things like that. I was wondering if, if you wanted to share some of, the, some of your information diet. Who are the, some of the key people you follow on Twitter? Uh, what are some of the key uh, journals you follow potentially, your email subscriptions, sure, anything sure. like that? Um, I don't get nearly enough time for Twitter, which is um, really unfortunate because, you know, there's nothing – if you engage with Twitter well, there's nothing trivial about Twitter, uh, Twitter as a platform. It's one of my most useful information sources, um, but I don't get nearly enough time, so I miss most of what's in my Twitter feed, unfortunately. If I um, have missed a lot of Twitter and um, and I get time, I'll, I'll sometimes go back and look at specific people's profiles and see what they've been tweeting of late. Who are those people? Um, Dorothy Bishop, um, Professor of Developmental Neuroscience at Oxford University. Greg Ashman, you've already mentioned. Linda Graham, uh, Associate Professor in Education at uh, QUT. Kevin Weldall, an emeritus professor from uh, Macquarie University, and he's the uh, one of the um, masterminds behind Multilit. Um, Max Coltart, also an emeritus professor from Macquarie University, and Castles, also Castles, Castles. <laughs> it's funny. I, I would say Castles there. It's funny, isn't it? Um, uh, also, she's a distinguished professor of cognitive science at Macquarie University. Uh, Debbie Heppelwhite, who is a um, teacher practitioner in the UK, who is an extremely knowledgeable person re- regarding uh, systematic synthetic phonics, uh, really knows her stuff around how it's best taught and how to support teachers and uh, provides a lot of useful resources. Alison Clark, I've also mentioned, Jennifer Buckingham. I'll think of lots more, and and I, I mean, they're probably, I suppose, the the people who are more sort of my tribe. 
but I do uh, there are there are also people who I won't mention who I don't follow but whose Twitter profiles I regularly have a look at <laughs> um, because you know I, I just want to know what's going on on the other side of the fence got it, got it. <laughs> and I'm sure there are people who don't follow me but who have a look at my feed from time to time for for the same reason. Sure. And as we come off the the back of International Women's Week, that was six out of nine of those were with women. So that's well, well, <laughs> a good plug there. That's good. Um, it was International Women's Day. We don't get a whole week. Uh, we only get a day. It should be a week. <laughs> it should be a week. It should be a week. <laughs> yeah. I just thought uh, people might be interested that there is a school in Melbourne, Bentley West Primary School, ha- who has embraced the explicit synthetic phonic instruction across the whole school and the principal is on mm. the panel with um that's Pamela right steve and cap and he's someone else i follow on twitter um as well yep absolutely yeah good point thanks Pamela. so the final oh, sorry another person who's really important for me on twitter is um carolyn bowen um with whom i've just written the book that i um, mentioned to you um this afternoon her twitter handle is at speechwoman and um, she's a very influential speech pathologist um, in Australia. So another woman for the list. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about that book? What's that book? Yeah, I can, I can tell you about the book. So um, Carolyn and I have got a book that's just literally at the printers this week called Making Sense of Interventions for Children with Developmental Disorders. Uh, the subtitle is A Guide for Parents, Teachers and Clinicians or something like that. So we're writing explicitly to parents with teachers and clinicians as the secondary audience. This is a book that actually came out of a Twitter interaction. Okay. A speech pathologist, I'm sad to say, was tweeting something about astrological psychology um, as a tool for um, assessing children with, yes, the speech pathologists in the room are looking a little askance at, the, at this point, for assessing children with learning disabilities. And Carolyn and I were pinging back and forth at each other in, in moral outrage um, that uh, a speech pathologist would be advocating such snake oil. And Carolyn um, sent me a direct message saying, you know, we should write a book about, you know, snake oil for, you know, kids with developmental disorders because there's so much of it out there. Um, and I said, yeah, 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 we should. And um, she, she said, you know, I'll, I'll put together a, a proposal. And uh, I said, oh, okay, all right. And uh, before we knew it, we had a proposal to a publisher and they accepted it. And uh, we spent the next two and a bit years of our lives writing this um well, I won't call it a tome because it's uh, it's hopefully something that's accessible to parents and the writing style we certainly hope is accessible to parents. But we've tried to debunk as much of the pseudoscience as we can um, that's in that space. There are, there are a lot of non-scientific approaches, uh, some of which have been in the media this week. Some of you may have seen Media Watch on um, Monday night which uh, covered the uh, uncritical approach that the Australian media took to Barbara Arrowsmith-Young when she was in Australia recently. And uh, so we we deal with reading, language disorders, autism spectrum disorders, Down syndrome, um, all the sort of common developmental disorders, the non-evidence-based approaches and the the literature on what does seem to work. Um, And, uh, yeah, that's coming up uh, this week. Sounds like a great book. About $35, I think. Oh, the, oh Carolyn tweeted that. Yeah, the, the tongue-in-cheek one. Yes. <laughs> She's good. <laughs> so, final question, Pamela, today. Do you have any calls to action to listeners? If there's anything that our listeners go away from listening to today's podcast and, and do, what would you like them to really do? Apart from buy your book, of course. Um, okay. Um, 
Look, I, I think the, the, the call to action is around the fact that we can't be complacent about literacy levels. And, and when I'm talking literacy, I am being a bit old-fashioned, I suppose, and talking about reading, writing and spelling. We live in, a, in a, an economy, a culture that is more and more technology and IT-driven, where jobs for unskilled workers are disappearing and jobs for unskilled males are disappearing more quickly, and that's you know, that could be said to be a very gender-biased um, statement, but in our culture, caring roles like elder care and childcare and what have you are more typically done by women, so those unskilled jobs are less likely, I would hope, in the near future to be overtaken by technology, but the, the jobs for unskilled males are diminishing and being replaced by technology. So we're seeing more of a need for people who complete secondary education and transition into further training. We can't afford to have young people disengaging before they've completed their secondary education. We have to look at all of the factors behind underachievement. Certainly equity and school funding is one of those, but I don't believe that simply changing funding models for schools is going to give us the outcomes that I think we all want. We all want more equitable success for children regardless of their starting point and what happens in the classroom has to be a part of that mix. Nothing on its own is going to uh, be the magic bullet. There is no magic bullet. But we have to be prepared to look at this as a complex problem that needs complex solutions and be prepared to deal with the discomfort that that may create for whoever it creates because the welfare and needs of children has to be more important than the discomfort of adults. Pamela, thanks so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you in the the ERRR and we look forward to continuing the conversation on Twitter. Thank you and thank you everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Pamela Snow. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at www.ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this week's episode, I'd love for you to write a review on iTunes to help more people to find the show. During this episode, I mentioned that I wanted to do a fact check on the claim that only 5% of year three students are reading below the national literacy benchmark. I've heard individuals argue that this is in fact evidence that, quote, we are sliding down the literacy test slide not because our children can't read the basics, it's because they can't read the complex. I did a bit of research and emailed ACARA, the organisation who runs NAPLAN, to try to get to the bottom of this statistic and the inference that some have made from it. The first thing that I found was that the statistic quoted relates to the national minimum standard for reading, that is, there are 5% of year three students below the national minimum standard. I emailed ACARA to ask how this NMS is derived, and ACARA stated that these standards were developed prior to ACARA's existence, so they don't actually have documentation regarding how these standards were specifically derived. They did, however, state that, quote, we are aware that the NMS is a very low standard compared to the more proficient standards set for other testing programs. I then asked them about the making of inferences from this data. I specifically quoted the inference mentioned above that we are sliding down the literacy test slide not because our children can't read the basics, but because they can't read the complex. And this was their answer. 
The inference you have drawn in your email, whilst seeming logical, cannot be confirmed by NAPLAN data, as there is no verified relationship between NAPLAN and the testing programs to which you are likely referring. Pisa Tim's Pearls. So what did I find out from that fact check? Well, the fact was partly true. 5% of Year 3 students are below a literacy benchmark, according to NAPLAN, but it's unfair to call this the literacy benchmark. It is in fact the national minimum standard, which ACARA indicated was, quote, a very low standard. For those who would like a bit more information about this or a little more processing time to think about it, I'd encourage you to check out the show notes from the Teachers Education Review podcast episode with Misty Adenew. In the comments section, Misty and I had an extended exchange on the topic of the National Finance Check and I found it really enlightening. In the discussion, I go into the topic in a little more detail, as does Misty. Whilst I was on my fact-checking mission, I thought I'd also explore the stated cost of the National Phonics Check. There were two quoted costs in the podcast. Pamela suggested around $12 per student, and I suggested the figure of $1.4 million. Pamela got her figure from the UK report, which after checking it I discovered was actually £12 per student, which is equivalent to around 20 Australian dollars per student. And I got my figure from Misty Adenew via the TER podcast that I mentioned earlier. I did a bunch of searching online, but I wasn't able to find any other estimates of the cost other than these two ones that were already quoted in the podcast. So to get a ballpark figure, I took the total number of students in Australia, around 3.8 million. I divided that by 13 to try to get an estimate of the number of year one students uh, in Australia. Then I multiplied that number of year one students by 20 to get an estimate of the total implementation cost. The final figure I came up was around the $6 million mark. Uh, What the true figure is is a bit of a mystery, but one would assume it was something around that $6 million. So lots of arguments on both sides, and this is obviously a complex issue. But I just wanted to acknowledge that I think it's really great there are shows like the Teachers Education Review as well as the ERRR to help explore these issues in more depth. If you've got any further info in this space, I'd really love for you to tweet to me at ollie underscore level, O-L-L-I-E underscore level. Uh, I'd be delighted to have any more evidence brought to my attention from either side of the debate. Make sure you check out ollilovercom forward slash podcast for upcoming live episodes of the ERRR that you're welcome to attend if you happen to be in Melbourne. And we've got some really exciting episodes coming up from discussions about the knowledge of early career teachers to innovative teaching programs in the UK to approaches to teaching students who have experienced trauma. Thanks once again to the Australian College of Educators for their support in bringing this episode of the ERRR podcast together. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning.